So we're turning again to Nehemiah, and we find ourselves in the, the last chapter. Nehemiah chapter 13. And we're going to read from the first 14 verses. On that day they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. And it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Now before this, Eliashib the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem. And I then discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry. And I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers. And I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, Pediah of the Levites, and as their assistants, Hanan the son of Zakur, son of Mataniah, for they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Remember me, O God, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. Amen. So this morning, we're going to be thinking about additional reforms that Nehemiah carries out, final added reforms. He's, he's reforming again. He's, uh, he's already put quite a number in place, of course, but there is need for, for additional ones. Uh, during this period of time, Nehemiah actually wasn't in Jerusalem at all. Uh, you see that in verse number 6. He had gone back to Babylon spent a particular period of time with the king, Artaxerxes. Of course, he had a, a responsible job. He was the cupbearer to the king. We're not quite sure how long he was there for. 
Some commentators reckon it might have been as long as two years that he was absent from Jerusalem. And after, and during the, 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 the time that he's away, uh, things begin to slip. Things go into reverse gear. And a lot of the stuff that he has been patiently building up all begins to crumble back down again. And when he returns, it's almost as if he's got to start again. He's got to redress the balance. He's got to begin and get them back on track. And basically, he is starting to reform again. Now, it's important when we, when we look at this passage in front of us that you see the timeline. Because the timeline doesn't follow in sequence with the verses. So, for instance, the last thing that happens is the first episode that is recorded in the chapter when the people read from the book of the law and they respond to it. That's the very last thing because in verse 4 it says, before this, Eliashib, the priest, had done something. And of course, that had happened, verse 6, when Nehemiah wasn't in Jerusalem. So the timeline is, he leaves, something happens, things begin to slip, He comes back, he puts the new reforms into place, and the people respond to it. That's the way that it works out. Um, What was it then that really happened that so upset him? Well, what happened was this, that Eliashib the priest um, establishes this man called Tobiah, who we'll come to later, in a large room at the center of the temple. And by doing that, um, the, the articles of furniture used for the worship of God are put out, and all the, su- the supports and supplies that were essential to help the various people functioning in the temple, the priests and the singers and so forth, you know, that is all displaced. And so what happens is these people have, have, don't have the wherewithal to survive anymore. And so they have to go back to their fields and work for a living. And the work of God begins to dwindle and it begins to stop all over again. So that basically is the background of what happens here. Now, I've got three questions that I want to ask as far as, you know, what we can learn from from this passage this morning and from these incidents. And the first question I'd like us to ask is this. What, What does all of this have to say about the people. What what does this say about the people? Because, you know, it seems that they they need Nehemiah to keep themselves going. If if he's away, you know, it it just all crumbles. It's almost as if I can give a kind of alternative heading uh, to today's sermon, which, which could be when the cat's away, you know, the mice do play. Because when he's not around... They just revert to their old habits again. It's almost as if they need Nehemiah, the strong leader, to kind of take them by the hand and to walk them down the right road. And when they can't put their hand in his hand, and when he's not there, they just are lost, and they just go away back. Now, the question, of course, is, what does that say about their level of maturity as far as the things of God are concerned? I mean, what does that say about the level of reality as far as the work of God 
in their hearts is concerned. If it's all dependent on having this person next to them to kind of spoon feed them and to walk them down the road. And, and you know, it's, it's, a, it's a real concern. If I can change the picture slightly, you know, they, they are like babies who need to be spoon-fed. And, and they can't survive in doing anything for themselves. Now, if I could get you to turn to 1 Corinthians 3, you'll see that that analogy is exactly the one that Paul takes up as he, as he writes to the church in Corinth. He says there, chapter 3, verse 1, Brothers, I couldn't address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not with solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you're not ready, for you're still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way. Now, if you were to flick through the rest of what he writes in the book of Corinth, 1 Corinthians here, you'll see that he describes division, party spirit within the church, people dividing up into little groups. He talks about lawsuits among believers, sexual immorality, problems in marriage, and the list goes on and on. And no wonder, he says, you're just like infants, and, and, I, and I just have to give you milk because you're not able to cope. Your maturity is at such a poor level. And that's exactly what we have here in Nehemiah. It's a very concerning situation that Nehemiah comes back into. Uh, in the surgery, you know, when, when the mums come in, uh, and you mums will know all this, uh, with the babies... Uh, for their developmental checks, they bring their little red book with them. And in their little red book, as part of it, there's a whole section that has to do with growth charts. And you, you plot on these things, you know, their head circumference and their weight and their height, and you want to make sure things are going up in the right direction. And if it's leveling off or if it's dipping, of course, there's real concern about the development of the child, about the growth and the maturity of the child. Now, say there was some kind of spiritual growth chart that we carried around in a little red book, all of us in our pockets, you know, and every week or whatever we had to present that to the Lord, you know, for him to check how the growth was going. You know, I don't know what would, what would be the parameters for establishing what, how we are growing well. You know, maybe it's obedience to his word. Maybe it's our sense of love for the Lord, his love for his people. You know, and am I growing? Am I developing? Am I now at the stage where I can eat properly, spiritually, or am I still on the milk? That is exactly the situation that we have as far as the people here are concerned. This is what Nehemiah met when he came back. So, what if we drill down, what really was the problem with, with this man, Tobiah, getting this room in the temple? Why was that such a big issue? Well, we, we, we meet this guy earlier on, of course, in the book of Nehemiah. You might want to turn back to chapter 2, just so I can show you that. Because this man is one of the three main antagonists 
to the work of the rebuilding of Jerusalem. You know, he with two of his friends are the, are the main guys around which the opposition, the hard opposition to the rebuilding of Jerusalem kind of converges around. So if you look at chapter 2, verse 10, it says there, But when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite servant, heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of God. If you look down at verse number um, 19 of the same chapter, but when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you're doing? Are you rebelling against uh, the king? So this man had been one of the main fellows who had been trying to antagonize the people and had been trying to intimidate, intimidate and to resist the work and, uh, and would, have, in fact, have, if he'd had the chance, headed up a full frontal attack against Jerusalem and its inhabitants. That's why the people, when they were building the wall, had to build it with a, a sword in one hand and a trowel in the other because it was a real and present danger. And this man was at the head of it all. And the frontal attack had failed because the walls are up. But now there's another thing. And there's a backdoor attack. And there's a more insidious way of him trying to affect detrimentally the work of God. And he gets in, and he gets in through his family relationships. Because if you, if you notice there, it says that Eliashib the priest, in verse 4, was related to Tobiah. Well, you find even more as far as Eliashib is concerned. If you go down later on the passage to verse number 28, it says there that one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Samballat. So another of the three musketeers. And he's related to them as well through marriage. And you can just imagine the way the conversation had, had gone. You know, Eliashib's wife comes to him and says, you know, uh, our daughter Mary's father, our daughter-in-law Mary's father here is, uh, he needs an office to work from. Can't seem to get anything. Could we not give him one of these rooms in the temple that's not used really for, for something very much? And, you know, keeps on at him and you know eventually because of his family relationships that that is a chink in the armor and he allows that to influence him and affect him and that becomes more of an issue than the teaching of the word of God and before you know it the opponent the enemy of the gospel and of God is at the very heart of the city and he's, he's beginning to work his work and he's, 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 he's beginning to pull things down and things slowly are losing the plot and losing the place and there's an enemy within and all of that had taken place basically because of these family relationships that Eliashib had got himself entangled in and that is a lesson for us we'll, we'll come to that later on maybe next week uh, the danger at times. And that's why the scripture is so, so clear on, on being 
warned about the danger of getting involved in relationships emotionally with people who don't love the Lord because that can take our hearts away. That can affect our judgment. That's exactly what happened in this case. What a warning uh, for us. So what did this say about the people? Second question. What does all of this tell us about Nehemiah? Well, it tells us this, that leadership is an ongoing battle. You can't rest on your, on your laurels. I don't know, maybe, maybe he had been called back um, to Babylon to get a few medals, you know, a bit of commendation for the success of the work up until now. Uh, and now he finds that here are problems all over again. And there will be always something that crops up. And the job is never done. And sometimes and oftentimes, the issues that come up are issues that have been there before, and they never always go away. And you can't, therefore, allow yourself to get discouraged. And it's important that you press on and that you keep on going. I mean, the people here, if you remember, if you recall, are the very same people who just a few chapters earlier had been so emotional when the Word of God had been read to them. They'd stood there for a third of the day listening to it, and they wept when they saw how far short they'd come. And, and they had been so serious when they had decided to, to sign their names to the, to the solemn covenant. We will not do this. We will never do this. And we will follow the Lord. And as it says, I think at the end of chapter 10, we will not neglect the house of our God. You know, we are committed to this, absolutely. These are exactly the same people. And, and here they are now neglecting the house of God and undermining it all. And you would have some sympathy for Nehemiah for throwing his hands up in the air and for walking away and saying, well, I think I'll just leave these fellows to it. But the great thing about Nehemiah is he doesn't do that at all. That it's always about something that is bigger than Nehemiah himself. Because he is taken up with the greatness of the work He'd said that earlier on in the book. You know, he said, I'm doing a great work. He knew the significance of what he was doing. It wasn't great because he was doing it. It was great because it was God's house and it was God's people. And it was an enormous thing as far as he was concerned. And that was his motivation. And that's what had gripped his heart. And that's what kept him going. Because he always had that in front of him. And that superseded any sense of disappointment and discouragement that anything else brought to the table. He's angry, of course. You can see that. You know, he gets rid of the guy and he chucks out all the stuff into the street. And, uh, you know, I read that and it reminded me, of course, of, of the Lord Jesus doing something fairly similar. Uh, and the cleansing of the temple... You know, he said, my father's house was meant to be a house of prayer for all nations. And yet you've made it into a den of, den of thieves. And, and, he, and he drove them out. And it was recorded at that point that zeal for my house has consumed me. And that's really also 
true of of Nehemiah. It's zeal, it's passion and enthusiasm for God's house and for prayer. You just have to look at his prayers here. His prayers are punctuated all the way through the book. The very last verse of our reading, verse 14, Remember me, what I have done for the house of my God and for his service. And that sums up the man. That's what he was all about. He was a good shepherd. You remember the Lord Jesus, of course, uses that analogy as well in John chapter 10. He says, The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. But the man who is a hireling, a hired hand, is not like that. When when the danger comes, when the wolf arrives, he is off. But the shepherd's not like that. He's prepared to lay down his life that the sheep might be safe. And, And Nehemiah is a good shepherd in his care for the people of God. And so, despite discouragements and disappointments and this regression he just keeps pressing on and pushing on it reminded me of how Paul put this in Philippians chapter 3 let me read it to you he said forgetting what is behind straining forward to what lies ahead I press on towards the goal for the prize of the, of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So let's all try and make a deliberate decision like, like Nehemiah did. To take our eyes off our discouragements and disappointments and to focus on the Lord and His greatness, the glory of Christ, the wonder of the gospel, and the wonder of the church of Christ. Of course, we don't mean an institution. We mean the reality of people from everywhere being brought into the fold of God and loved and accepted by Him. Let's let's make a decision to do that. Final question. What was this next reform anyway? You know, it's, it's one of his final reforms. What actually was it? And that brings us to what is recorded as the first thing in the chapter, but in fact, as we have seen, is actually the the last thing. And it's this. Of course, it all stems from the Bible, the reading of the Word of God again. And as they read the Word of God, this particular reading you'll find is Deuteronomy 23, verse 3 to 5. There is one thing in particular, and you can see the relevance of it. Because Tobiah was an Ammonite. Okay? And the particular thing that's mentioned here is that the Ammonites and the Moabites were not allowed to enter into the assembly of God's people. And there was a reason for that, and you'll read that in Numbers chapters 23 through to 25, because when the people were traveling through on the king's highway, you know, on their way to the promised land, and they came to the border of these people, and they asked for hospitality, some food and water as they passed through, they wouldn't do it. You know, they wouldn't allow them to pass through their territory. And in fact, what they did was, the king of Moab hired a sorcerer by the name of Balaam to curse the people. And in the story, you learn that that curse, in fact, was changed to a blessing. And it's because of that, that this injunction is here. That from now on in, nobody who's a Moabite or 
an Ammonite is allowed to be in the assembly of God's people. They listened to that, they took it on board, and they did it there and then. They separated, it says, verse 3, from Israel, all those of foreign descent, which, of course, included Tobiah, but it included other people as well. Now, this seems fairly harsh. And in fairness, it's not inconsistent with basically most of the Old Testament, which is about the separation. Again and again, this point is put in exclusion and separation of people, not just from the people of God, but from God himself. I mean, it's summed up very well in Ephesians chapter 2, because they were not Jewish people in Ephesus. And he says, you know, you were, you were foreigners from the commonwealth of Israel. You were strangers to the covenants of promise. You were, with, you were without God and you were without hope in this world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were very far away have been brought near. And this, this is again and again painted in black letters throughout the, the Bible. True for the Jews as well, of course. Their whole temple structure and religious system all shouted out, you're separate, you, 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 you have to stay away, you're not near to God. Everything said that you need intermediaries, you need, you need a mediator, you need things to happen before you can have any hope of becoming near to God. And that point is just being emphasized here and emphasized time and time again. And it's written in black letters, heavy black letters, so that the contrast with the golden letters of the gospel will be enhanced and highlighted. And the golden letters of the gospel are saying the opposite thing. They are talking not about being excluded, but being included. That through Christ, people who have been far away because of our sin and our rebellion against the law of God can be brought near in Christ. The wonderful words of invitation by our Lord, come unto me, come unto me, let me invite you to come to me. I'm not holding you at arm's length. He said, let the little children come to me. Let everyone come, everyone who's weary and heavy laden. And I will give you rest. A wonderful text, you know. God so loves the world that he gives his son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Wonderful words of inclusiveness and a curse, as it says here about Balaam, has been turned into a blessing. A curse has been turned into a blessing. Now, I said that the Old Testament, you know, writes this message of separation and heavy letters by and large, and it does that deliberately so that we get the point and we learn that lesson that, that, that we need help and that we are not near to God. But in and among all of that, of course, they are, there are these messages of Christ and the hope that comes from him. And you, and you get this, actually, in the story of Balaam. And if you wanted to turn to, to Numbers 24, you'll get one of the very earliest prophecies from the, from the lips of a sorcerer about Christ. And it says this in Numbers 24, 17. 
as Balaam looks down upon the people of God from a mountain, he actually says this, I see him. That is Christ. I see him, but, but not now. I, I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob, and a scepter will arise out of Israel. And that's the prediction, a prophecy about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The blessing of Christ that overturns the curse that people can be reconciled to God. God is reconciling the whole world to Himself through Christ. And as the people of God, as Christ's ambassadors, that's what we are to say. Be reconciled. God. Don't stay excluded. Let Christ gather you in his arms. So these are the ongoing reforms. Culture of continual change and continual revitalization. That's what Nehemiah was all about. And I think that is the message that comes to us this morning. Maybe we should ask a couple of questions uh, as we close to our own hearts. And maybe the they're these ones. Uh, if the cat was away and nobody was holding my hand, how would I get on as far as my level of maturity of just keeping on, pressing on for God? Will I keep pressing on like Nehemiah did, despite discouragement for the glory of God and for the bigger picture? And will I grasp again the wonderful message of inclusion that welcomes me to Christ where I can be cleansed and accepted and brought near and experience the deep, deep love of Jesus. Now shall we pray. So Lord, we make that our prayer today as we thank you for the wisdom and the instruction that comes from your word. We pray for those who, who still feel and are actually at a distance from you that the wonder of the gospel of Christ who died for our sins, that that message of your redeeming love will grip all our hearts with the knowledge that we are invited to come to Christ and receive rest. We also pray, Lord, for maturity and growth in our hearts as believers in Christ, not to be paddling in the shallows, but to be growing and to be mature and responsible in the way that we live our lives, not overly dependent on others. And Lord, we come and we ask that we might have a sense of perseverance and persistence, despite difficulties and discouragements, that we might see Christ and His glory and the work of God and the wonder of the church, that that might be something that becomes our motivation. So, Lord, we commit ourselves to you. We thank you for all your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen.